0: You know, we were singing that song, God is so good. He is a good God. He's so good. And uh, sometimes it's hard. When the part came up about the suffering, and I apologize for this. And I thought about Paul, who suffered so much and still says God is good. And every day, I see someone I love so much suffer and still say God is so good in our life. God is better than we can ever imagine. And God loves us more than we can ever know. And sometimes, when life is most painful, you realize then how much God loves you. And as your pastor, who's walking through a a strange time in his life with his wife, never think for a moment That Debbie and I don't know that God is good every step of the way. And whatever may happen in our lives, he is always, always good. And he always, always loves you. And never, ever forget that. I promise you that is true. That wasn't in my sermon notes. I just added that part because of the song. So blame Brian. If you're a guest, my name's David, and I am the pastor of the church. And we are so glad you are here with us. We want you to know you're always welcome to be a part of what we are doing here. We moved out to this location five years ago in January, January of 2018. And we removed here from our old location, which is in in, uh, downtown uh, on Miranda Street. And this is, we're in the first phase of of a multi-phase building program, relocation program. And we have another phase coming up. And uh, that next phase hopefully will start soon, but last year we began a three-year, a 36-month capital campaign. And uh, we're a year into it, I need to report where we're at. Our impact campaign, we committed IMPACT, $1.2 million, and we raised 763,000 of it so far, and that's pretty cool, and we're excited about that. Now, if you're new or you're not a part of IMPACT and you would like to be, please contact our executive pastor, Troy Tudor, and he will help you with that. We are in a sermon series entitled Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is about a guy we know, Paul, the Apostle Paul. You can take that off now. That's not a part of it. There you go. And it's not there yet either. We're kind of in between. Right? I threw you all off, I realized that when I went in prompt So we're good. We'll get to that part in a minute. But we're in a sermon series about Paul. And uh, in this series, it's important because Paul, more than anybody else, has impacted the Christian faith other than Jesus. And uh, when you come to this series about Paul, one of the main things I wanted to do was stress the life of Paul, because the life of Paul impacts us, but also the teachings of Paul. And we spent a lot, especially the first part of the series on the life of Paul, kind of focusing now on the teachings of Paul. And uh, one of the things that I shared with you from the very beginning, this is so important to get this series is this, that the story of Jesus is the most important story in all the world and how his story impacts our story is the most important story in our world. And Paul knew that. Paul understood how the story of Jesus impacts us is the most important story there is. And so he sets about telling people the story of Jesus. And as we look through his life and we look through his teachings, that's what we're seeing. And so today we come in Romans chapter 3, to a really kind of difficult concept. It's the concept of justification. And uh, we're gonna be there, and, and what I want you to see from this passage today and from this message is simply this. Because of our rebellion against God, we have made it impossible to be right with God unless God, unless God, and it continues. Our rebellion against God, and we all rebel against God, we have made it impossible. For you and I to be right with God. So I'm going to begin the message today talking about Paul who wrote a letter to a church you never visited. Have you ever had to write or correspond to someone you did not know? And you've got to kind of establish who you are and you've got to kind of establish what you're about. Paul did that in the book of Romans. Paul hadn't been to Rome. He didn't start that church. Now he knew people there. And he wanted to go to that church, and he wanted to visit with him, and that was his plans. And he was in Ephesus sometime around 56 AD or so, and so he kind of wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Now, unlike his other letters, he wasn't writing it to people, a church he started, or to like Timothy, who he sent someplace, and he was dealing with problems. He, he was talking to people, he knew some of them, but he didn't know most of them. And so he introduces himself, and in doing this, he writes what is probably his deepest and most theological message or letter that we see. And Rome is deep with stuff. Now, here's the thing. We're going to go through this sermon today, and there's a lot of churchy terms we're going to use. And if you're new and you're a guest, you probably didn't want to come here to hear a bunch of churchy terms, and I get that. I don't like using a bunch of churchy terms. It sometimes feels just kind of pompous and sanctimonious. There are times I want to be pompous and sanctimonious, but just not not what I'm preaching. And so that's not the time. And so there's going to be some churchy terms. Bear with me. I'm going to get you through all of this and get to a place we need to be on it. And so we're going to talk about it. And Paul comes to Rome, uh, to the book of Romans. We come and realize Paul lays things out. And he tells him in early in Romans, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's a beautiful, beautiful message. The gospel is God's power of salvation to anyone who believes, anyone who has faith, anyone who trusts Christ. And then he says this in verse 17 of chapter 1. He lays out really his thesis of life and what he's going to talk about throughout the book. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous one will live by faith. He says, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is to be right with God. It's the righteousness that God gives. That righteousness is experienced by faith. And the person who is right with God is right with God by faith. The problem is none of us on our own are right with God. And so in verse 18, he writes this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The righteous live by faith. However, the problem is nobody is righteous. We're unrighteous. We're ungodly. Why? Because we suppress the truth and righteousness. We lie and suppress the truth about God. We rebel against God. Now, that term wrath is a tough term. And we live in a day and age where nobody wants to hear about wrath. And I get that. Because to us, wrath is just pouring out this anger. You know, you you ever tell someone, you don't want to experience my wrath? I remember growing up, I did not want the wrath of my mom. I did not want that. Because my mom, when she had wrath, things started flying. Knives, pans, didn't matter. People, things were flying. I did not want the wrath of my mom. See, to us, wrath is based on raw emotion. It is our anger. It is an outburst. I think of wrath, I think of an outburst. And that's what we think about God when we think of the wrath of God. And I hear people say, you know, I I can't worship or love a God who has this wrath. But the problem is that's not what wrath means. The actual word for wrath used in this verse is something that is very slow to happen. It speaks of a big old pot of water put on fire. And you light that fire to burn the water or to boil the water. It takes a long, long, long time. It is a slow process. But what wrath is, is this. And it's so important. It is not based on emotion. It is not based on that emotional anger. It is based on position, relationship. God is holy. And because God is holy, that which is sinful cannot come into his presence. And you and I are sinful, we rebel against him. Where we find ourselves unable to come into the presence of a holy God is positionally in a broken relationship. Because positionally we're in a broken relationship, we are under his wrath. Wrath is his divine and holy reaction to our sin. It is a just God saying, sin can't come into my presence. That's where we are. Then he spends the next few chapters talking about how we know we're sinful. And he talks about Gentiles and he talks about the Jews and their sin with God against God. And no one is exempt. No one. And when he talks about the sin of the Gentiles and how God holds them accountable, Sorry, I thought I was wrong in the right place. Okay. <laughs> Some of you, somebody did something that caused the wrath of God right there. Just like that. So, because where was I? Because the Gentiles, and, and we wonder sometimes, how can God hold people who don't know about him accountable? Genesis, I mean, uh, Romans tells us in that chapter one, how you can do that. Because everyone sins against God Because they know there is a God that exists. And and, in their worship, they sin against him. In their morality, they sin against him. And then he goes and talks to the Jews. and He says, Jews, you had the law. God laid out in the law what he expects of you. And you have violated that and you have broken that. And then he says, and because you've broken that law, you're accountable also. In fact, here's what he says in Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. In other words, you have the law, but the law won't be, you help you be justified because the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's what law does. The law points out all your sin. That's what it does. And you cannot be, and he uses the word justified. And here we have the concept of justification come in. To be justified, in its essence, is to be declared right by God. The word justified in the word righteous are the same word in the Greek. Justification, righteousness, justified, righteousness, all the same. It depends on the context or the suffix prefix, how you would use it, or just the, the whim of the interpreter, the translator. But it's the same word. It means to be right with God, to be declared right with God, in right standing with God. We are not in right standing with God. We can't be in right standing with God even if you keep the law. So Paul is about to explain the process or the idea of justification. And before he does that, we need to understand something about God that's important. Why would God do this? Why would God take us who are sinners, who have rebelled against him, and want us to be right with him? We don't do that. That's not our inclination. If someone, you know, does something against us, offends us, sins against us, does something to anger us. We, you know, our inclination isn't to be right with them. I mean, it isn't, it isn't to fix things. Now, we don't necessarily have people rebel against us. I guess our children could rebel. They do that. But mine's 35. She doesn't rebel anymore. And my wife doesn't rebel because my wife's in control. I'm the one who does rebelling in that relationship. You know how that works, guys. You know how that works, right? You young guys who aren't married yet, trust me. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be in charge. Just You wait all the time, man. It's never going to change. And so we don't don't have that concept. But why does God do that? Why does God want things to be right? Because he loves us. You know, the concept of love in the New Testament is amazing. It's not not the concept of love you find outside the New Testament. The average Greek person, their concept of love, eros, which is never found in the New Testament, is self-centered. I mean, to the world, you start with the love of self people love you. You want people to love you. You want to be loved. Yes, you love people. You love your children unconditionally. I get that. But love always starts with you. In the New Testament, there's a completely different word. It's rarely even found outside the New Testament. The word agape or archipa, which is the verb, but agape, it's not a word was used in common in Greek. In fact, the New Testament guys gave it a definition. Actually, Jesus gave it a definition in John three sixteen. even though he spoke probably Aramaic, John translated into English, he tells us what it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so agape the world that he did what? He gave. Later on in John 15, 13, Jesus says, no greater love does a man have than this to lay down his life for his friends. Love then, the New Testament is to give of self. Love begins with the other person. Romans 5, 8. Here's what Paul writes. But God demonstrates or shows his own love towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his agape, his love for us in this. And here's what it means. Literally, we were still in the very process of rebelling against him. I was in the process of rebelling against him. And then Jesus died for me. That's love. And because of that love, God justifies us. And the concept of justification is very simple. Justification means to be declared in right standing with God by God. Justification means to be declared that you are in right standing with God, but it has to be by God. You don't get to do the justifying. God does that. He declares we are in right standing. Justification is a legal term. It's a legal term, and it's kind of pictured this way. You got to go to court to pay a fine. Now, when you go to court to pay a fine, you're paying that fine because you were out of source with the court. And two things exist at the same time. You are not right with the court because you did something that deserves a fine and you have a debt you have to pay. Now, in the New Testament, in a few moments, we're going to see the word, a fancy, a, word, a harder churchy word than justification is the word propitiation. We're going to see that word in a minute. And propitiation means to be right. Right to be declared right, to this reaffirm the status. When you pay a fine, two things. One, you settle a debt. You had a debt. You settle that debt. Jesus, on the cross, settled our debts. But you do something else. You allow the judge to declare that you are right with the court. And that is what propitiation is. We'll see that in a minute. And when Jesus came into this world, as we'll see in the passage in a few minutes, he became our Propitiation. He is the one who set things right with the court, with God. Now that's important for our salvation because you've got to understand you can't pay the debt and you can't set things right with God. You cannot do it. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, apart from the law, which, you know, points out our sin. The righteousness of God has been revealed. God has revealed to us his righteousness, what he expects of us to be right with him. How are we right with God? How are we justified? He reveals that. And it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law does not make you righteous, but the law and the prophets, that phrase to a Jew would signify the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Remember what I say all the time? The Old Testament promises something the New Testament delivers. The Old Testament promises Jesus, and the New Testament delivers. Verse 22 says it, but it is the righteousness of God. It is God's righteousness. It is he who is right, and how he shows us what it means to be right through faith in Jesus. Righteousness comes then through a process, through a means, through an avenue that is Jesus Christ. Through faith in him. And by the way, faith is not something you create. Faith comes from God. I grew up. Southern Baptist all the way. And I remember being taught, God supplies the grace, you supply the faith. No, we don't. We were taught wrong if you were taught that. If I supply the faith, that means I'm doing the work. I'm bringing it to the table. When you have a potluck, I may supply the main dish, but if you bring dessert, you're bringing something to the table. You probably bought it at Albertsons, but you're still bringing it to the table, you know? I don't bring anything to the table. Oh, my sin, that's it. The faith I have, God gave me. And it says, for all those who believe, who trust him, there is no distinction. Anyone can come to the Lord. He just talked about the sin of the Jews and the Gentiles. And they all sinned. We all have sinned. In fact, verse 23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our culture does not like the concept of sin. I get that. I mentioned that last week. We don't. Because sin means I've done something wrong and I don't like think that I can do anything wrong. We live in a culture that says you be you and whatever you is, is okay. But you being you isn't okay because you being you rebels against God. And We've all fallen short of the glory, which is the holiness of God. We don't meet that standard of God. So, verse 24 tells us what happens. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Being justified, being declared right by God. God has declared us right in Jesus. Not because of our works. It is his grace. It is a gift. You didn't earn a gift. Gifts are just given. And that gift is given to us through Jesus. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word redemption is an economic term. Now, You know, in the 830 service, which is mostly older people, we talked about stamps that you used to redeem for gifts. Some of you have no idea what we're talking about. So for a younger generation, you have these things called coupons, right? Sometimes you get something sent on your smart device. You never actually handle a coupon, though they come in the mail. If you know what mail is, they come in the mail. But you can get them on your, and you take your coupon to the store, and you redeem something. Buy one, get one free, uh, whatever, It's it's, you get something in return. Redemption is to buy back. It's to pay back. In those days, a Jewish person, if they were poor, could sell themselves into servitude. And by doing so, someone agreed to take them as their servant, as their slave, and then they would be paid for. They would be taken care of and provided for. But a member of their family could come and buy them back, redeem them. We have been redeemed through Jesus. The gift that we have is nothing that we do. The gift is that Jesus will buy us, redeem us. He will pay that debt we owe. I owe a debt to the court. I can't pay it. Someone pays it for me. And if I ever have a debt to the government and you want to pay it for me, I will let you do that. I will accept that gift. And that's what we do in Christ. So that, verse 25, so important. Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as and here's the word propitiation." Now, if you have the new international version, it says atoning sacrifice." It trans, doesn't translate, it interprets. The translation of the Greek word would be propitiation. Atoning sacrifice. It's pretty close, but it's not the best way of using it. It's propitiation. Because atoning sacrifice is ultimately what Christ does. He sacrificed so that we could have our sins atoned or forgiven. But the concept is propitiation. He was publicly displayed as the one who sets us right. He sets us right by his death. I get it. But the important thing here is God displayed publicly Jesus as the one who sets us right in his blood, because of his sacrifice through faith. Not everyone gets this. Not everyone gets the benefit of the death of Christ. But those who have faith. Why? This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. You ever wonder why God just doesn't deal with evil? Because if God just ever dealt with evil when it occurred, none of us would be here. None of you would be around. You know why you stick around? Because God has mercy. God has love. And God wants to give you time and chance to turn to Jesus, if you will. Verse 26. For the demonstration, that is, his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is a just God. Eventually, God sets all things right. Oh, he will. He will deal with all the sin there is. But in the meantime, before he acts in total justice to set all things right, he is the one who justifies. He is the one who declares whether we are right or not with him. He does that when we have faith or trust in Christ. We have rebelled against God. And there's nothing you and I can do in that rebellion to change the status that we are not right with God. You can never make things right. Oh, you want to. That's our human nature. You offend somebody, you may say, how can I make this right? You know, your husband and wife, you have a fight, and inevitably the husband has to say, honey, how can I make this right? It's never the other way around, guys. If you think it's the other way around, you're a one lucky dude to have that kind of life. How can we make it right? And we want to say, God, you know, God, I'll make it right. No, you can't make it right. But only God can make it right. Think about how much love this takes to be God and have that which you created rebel against you. And the only way you can make things right is by sending Christ Jesus on a cross to pay the price for their sin. And even then, most of them will never thank you and will never trust you. And they'll never believe in you. Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome. And he talked about this unbelievable gift of justification. But understand this, Paul also wrote a letter to us. A letter of a God who loves us more than we can ever understand. You know, we sang that song, God is so good. We know he is so good because we experience that goodness in his love every single day. And we experience it in Christ. Which brings me to the second thing I want to share with you. God must really love us. He must love us. It's who he is. It's not only Paul that wrote about this. Probably the one apostle that was as close to Jesus as anyone who was his cousin, who was blood. John wrote about it towards the end of the first century in his old epistle called 1 John in the fourth chapter. Verse 10, here's what he says. This is love. Not that we loved God. No, no, no. But that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That fancy word, and it is a fancy word in many ways. But it's a technical word that says this. This is how we know God loves us. He sent Jesus to set things right. Because you and I can't do it. It's hard for our culture to grasp that. I get it. Because it's always hard for the culture to grasp that kind of love. Because that's not how they love. At the heart of a people outside of the relationship with God. At the heart of a people in rebellion against God. Is that love is about us. Who loves me? Who reciprocates what I call love? It's always about me. And at the heart of the people in rebelling against God is the concept that if I'm ever going to be right with God, it's only if I set things right. There's no religion in the world that doesn't have, at the center of its faith, man doing something to set things right. Except for the Christian faith. It's the only one where you and I can't ever make things right with God. We're only God can do that and he does it because he loves us because as Paul said he shows his love and that Christ died for us even while we sinned against him so understand this to be right with God we have to be in right standing with God and God has to say we are right God has to say we are right we're coming up on epic Sunday in our announcement time at the end of the service there will be an announcement about that Two years ago, you know, we were getting ready for Epic Sunday about now. We had kind of come out of the pandemic. Things were kind of, you know, getting back to normal. You know, our church had been kind of doing things normal for a while anyways. And so we planned our big Epic Sunday. And you know, right about now, the governor kind of shut everything down again and everything got closed and blah, 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 blah. And so it was kind of a tough decision because, you know, we, we have been just functioning normal. And that's what we want to keep doing. And we have this great worship service called Epic Sunday, the honor of God. And, and so, you know, what am I going to do? You know, we got all this thing planned, and uh, it's huge outside, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I talked over some of the staff, talked over with the trustees. And in the day, I just had to make a decision. I said, we're going forward with it. Whatever was decided was decided, we're going forward. And at that moment, I put us in a bad relationship with somebody somewhere. I'm not sure who, but I did. So it's Friday before Epic Sunday. I'm here by myself. I'm leaving, and someone pulls up in an official Lost Cruises car. It's codes enforcement people. I'm like, great. I bet I know why they're here. <laughs> big guy gets out, nice guy. He said he introduces himself and I said, Well, I'm the guy you want. I'm the pastor. I kinda help you. I ah, hear you got a thing coming on this Sunday. I said, Yes, we did. Let's talk about it. So we walked around and I showed him all that we were gonna do. We're gonna have baptism and child dedication, worshiping, and oh yes, a big barbecue picnic and all that stuff. And, we're walking it through and he says, okay. He says, Do you guys have a policy about COVID and all that? I said, Yeah, we got a policy. He said, but it's not my job to enforce it. You understand that, right? It's not my job. I'm not the one who made this stuff up. He goes, No, I but you got a policy. I said, Yeah, I got a policy. He says, Okay. He begins to walk away. I said, Hang on a second. Are we good? And I'll never forget what he told me. He looked at me and he said, You and I, we're good. We're good. Let me tell you what justification is. And it's oversimplification. And I don't want it to be too common and too profane. But here's what justification is. It's God looking at us and saying, in Jesus, you and I are good. We're good. You see, God sent Jesus to set things right with him for us. He did. And through faith in Jesus, God declares we're right with him. And only God can declare that. It is his gift by his grace. You can't earn it. And that's how much God loves us. That's how much God loves us. Because of our sin, we can never be right with God. It's impossible. Unless God, unless God declares us right. I know it can be hard to understand that. I can know it can be hard to be a part of the culture and see that type of love and to see that there's nothing that you and I can do. but that's God's gift, and that's His decision. So have you trusted? Jesus. have you trusted with your life the one who can make you right with God and the one? through whom God will declare you right. Have you trusted him? If you haven't, why don't you do that? Because you'll never be right with God, and you'll never experience the love of God until you trust Christ with your life. And we have our invitation time. We're going to be here. And if you want to come and give your life to Christ, you can. If you want to join our church, you can. Hey, if you want to just come and pray with one of us, you can. But understand this. Be sure when you leave this place today, be sure when you leave, you're right with God. Be sure you're right with God. So, Father, thank you for a beautiful passage. It's hard sometimes to understand it. And sometimes when we read it, we just kind of gloss over it because we can't always grasp it. And sometimes, Father, in truthfully known, it looks like one of those passages that are just boring stuff and we don't need to understand it. But yet at the very heart of this passage is the ultimate truth of all truths. We're not right with you. And we can't fix that. But you did in Jesus. And if we will take our life and trust him with it and declare that he is our Lord. Well, God, you'll declare us right. You will set us right in Jesus our Lord. Amen. And amen.